Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors. Control Up, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. Control Up, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by PolicyPack Software, now part of Netrix, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And of course, also brought to you by the excellent Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Another month, another patch Tuesday. I published last week's episode of the podcast early on Tuesday morning, Arizona time just as Patch Tuesday was commencing. So there's been over a week of these patches baking in the proverbial enterprise IT oven. ZDNet reports that this patch cycle brings over 100 security fixes that resolve critical issues, including two zero days. Products impacted by April's security update includes the Windows operating system, Office, Dynamics, Edge, Hyper-V, File Server, Skype for Business, and Windows SMB, to name a few. The two zero-day vulnerabilities resolved in this update include CVE-2022-26904, which impacts the Windows user profile service and is described as an EOP vulnerability, which is a privilege escalation vulnerability or escalation of privileges. And the bug has been issued with a severity score of 7 out of 10, with its attack complexity considered high, as successful exploitation of this vulnerability requires an attacker to win a race condition, according to Microsoft. The other zero day is CVE-2022-24521, and this is another escalation of privilege issue that's found in the Windows Common Log File System Driver, This one gets a 7.8 out of 10 on severity, and Microsoft says the attack complexity is low and the company has detected active exploitation of this actual vulnerability. So this is one you definitely need to patch as soon as possible. There are also some high severity security issues impacting RPC, our remote procedure call runtime, and the Windows network file system. And both of those can be exploited to trigger remote code execution and get a severity of 9.8 out of 10. So definitely need to be patched as soon as possible. Also of note this month, KB5012592, an update for Windows 11, makes it possible to display up to three high priority toast notifications simultaneously, as well as fixing issues with OneDrive. The update also introduces a simpler way to change the default web browser in Windows 11, which they made it into a pain in the butt. And although it is a change that has been met with disdain from the likes of Mozilla and Vivaldi, if you've tried it already yourself before, even on Windows 10, I think the way you need to change default programs sucks in Windows now. (laughs) I wish they'd find a better way to do it. Vulnerabilities that I already reported on last week 
that were very high severity flaws in VMware Workspace ONE Access and VMware Identity Manager, which I had reported could be exploited to launch remote code execution attacks. Well, that was last week. Now you need to crank that warning up because there are already active exploits of this in the wild. And in some cases, attackers are getting into the systems, fixing the bug themselves, then just maintaining their own access to give victims a false sense of security. This is a strategy that has been used several times in the past by cyber gangs with other vulnerabilities, so it's not new. But if you're not cognizant of the fact that they're doing this in some cases of this attack and you go to check to see if you're vulnerable, you might assume, oh, well, I'm not vulnerable because I checked and it seems like everything's fine. Well, think again because you may not actually all be fine. BleepyComputer.com reports, due to its active exploitation, if you haven't applied the VMware security updates or mitigations yet, it is extremely urgent that you do so as soon as possible. For users of VMware products, it is worth noting that the vendor's advisory lists several high severity flaws apart from these mentioned RCEs, as I mentioned on last week's episode, that also affects other products too. So make sure that you're patching with the latest versions of all VMware products. I didn't see any community or vendor provided scanner tool for this vulnerability yet, like to check to see, you know, if you have already been attacked and you just don't realize it yet because they haven't launched a ransomware attack or anything yet. I haven't seen a scanner specific to these vulnerabilities yet, so maybe that will come in the future. Also security related, security firm Esset also disclosed two vulnerabilities, CVE-2021-3971 and 3972, which affect UEFI firmware drivers in some Lenovo machines, and they're extremely worrying because of the potential implications of exploitation. The good news here, I guess, is that ESET are the ones who are highlighting this, not some cyber gang. And new drivers have already been issued by Lenovo. So if you're a Lenovo customer, good idea to reach out, go to their advisory and make sure that you're not impacted by this. Betanews.com who reported on the vulnerability for Lenovo devices lists IdeaPad 3 to also more advanced machines like Legion 5 Pro 16ACH6H or the Yoga Slim 9-14ITL05. But that might change by the time you hear this, there may be more affected devices listed. So always check out the vendor's advisory. In what can be the first line breached for many in an attack, Cisco have issued a critical security advisory for its wireless LAN controller used in various Cisco products to manage wireless networks as it could allow an unauthenticated remote attacker to bypass authentication controls and log into the device via the management interface. A successful exploit is said to potentially allow the attacker to bypass authentication and just log into the device as an administrator with admin privileges. The register reports that Cisco WLC software release 8.10.151.0 or release 8.10.162.0 combined with having the Mac filter radius compatibility mode set to other 
on their 3504 wireless controller, 5520 wireless controller, 8540 wireless controller, Mobility Express, and Virtual Wireless Controller will be what warrants taking action. There is a command you can use to check if your appliance is affected. Obviously, best to patch for a fix, but if you're unable to patch, mitigate with commands that are provided in this article by the register, and I'll share a link to that with this episode, which is episode 226, and you'll find that on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode. There's also a new zero-click iPhone exploit being used to install NSO group software that I believe made the news several years ago as being very invasive spyware developed by an Israeli intelligence company. Well, this new zero-click exploit affects versions before 13.2 of iOS, so an older version of iOS. Among the victims of these attacks, according to Citizen Lab, is the Catalan members of the European Parliament, or MEPs, every Catalan president since 2010, as well as Catalan legislators, jurists, journalists, and members of civil society organizations and their families. So interesting that it seems to target the Catalans possibly because of the protests and potential vote to secede a few years ago. But it is reported that Apple's forensics teams are working with a Catalan academic research lab to gather evidence of what is being called the homage flaw that was being exploited. The understanding is this was fixed in version 13.2 of iOS and the more recent versions. And obviously the latest or current version of iOS at the time of this recording is 15.4. So odds are you're probably already secure if you keep up to date just updating your own personal phone. If you're in an enterprise and maybe you've got some non-day-to-day used devices that are used every so often, maybe you're a little less on top of things with updating those devices. Good idea to update those devices if you haven't yet. Get on to the most current if possible. ZDNet this week reported that Microsoft have disabled SMB version 1 in the Windows 11 Home Edition in the dev channel right now. The awesome Ned Pyle from Microsoft stated, There is no edition of Windows 11 Insider that has any part of SMB 1 enabled by default anymore. At the next major release of Windows 11, that will be the default behavior as well. Like always, this doesn't affect in-place upgrades of machines where you are already using SMB1. SMB1 is not gone here. An admin can still intentionally reinstall it, according to Ned. Pyle went on to say that Microsoft will be removing the SMB1 binaries and that both Windows and Windows Server will no longer include the drivers and DLLs of SMB1. Microsoft will provide an out-of-band, unsupported install package for users that still need to connect to old factory machinery, medical gear, consumer NAS, and other equipment that still requires SMB1, however. I mean, I think it would be great just to completely kill it. Understandable, though, there's still the reliance on some of that older stuff. Like, I think the Sono speakers were still using SMB1 even just a couple of years ago. I'm not sure if they still are. But woohoo! Kill it! <laughs> we should have all been actively working on getting rid of things that depended on SMB1 after WannaCry, in my opinion. So, this is a positive development. 
There have been a couple of new developments announced for Intune, including Intune now exports Windows device diagnostic data in an updated format. And it said with the updated format, the logs collected are named to match the data collected. And when multiple files are collected, a folder is created. With the earlier format, the zip file used a flat structure of numbered folders that did not identify their contents. So if you're collecting multiple logs, you might have been confused of, you know, what log related to when you captured it, for example. And also now you can use the uninstall assignment type to remove DMG type applications on managed Mac OS devices from Microsoft Endpoint Manager. Slashdot.org had an interesting post that I never really considered, but university researchers discovered and shared that popular web conferencing apps fail to disable device microphones and that these apps have the ability to access audio data when muted or even in some cases actually do so. The research is described in a paper titled, Are You Really Muted? A Privacy Analysis of Mute Buttons in Video Conferencing Apps. Researchers found that Cisco WebEx, as an example, queries the microphone regardless of the status of the mute button. They found that WebEx every minute or so sends the network packets containing audio-derived telemetry data to its servers, even when the microphone was muted. After the researchers reached out about their findings, Cisco altered WebEx so it no longer transmits microphone telemetry data. A Cisco spokesperson stated, quote, Cisco is aware of this report and thanks the researchers for notifying us about their research. WebEx uses microphone telemetry data to tell a user they are muted, referred to as the mute notification feature. Cisco takes the security of its products very seriously, and this is not a vulnerability in WebEx, end quote. Which I guess, you know, if you use WebEx, at least now they're saying that that's no longer the case anyway. So make sure you're on the latest version, I guess. But it wasn't just Cisco WebEx. I just use that as an example of something that was found in the study. Other apps studied include Zoom, Slack, Microsoft Teams and Skype, Google Meet, BlueJeans, Whereby, GoToMeeting, Jitsi Meet, and Discord. I'll share a link to the study if you'd like to read up on your video conferencing or web conferencing app of choice. Really good job on the research by the universities. There's been an update to the Windows terminal. It now allows windows created by console apps to appear above the terminal window. There's a GIF within this update on GitHub that shows an example of like executing PowerShell within the terminal, and that launches a UI from the PowerShell script, and that now overlays on top of the terminal. It's not being hidden behind it. Small update, but hey, every little helps. Daniel Shell published an in-depth analysis of VSTO Office add-ins and how they can be leveraged to execute .NET assemblies from the internet. It was one of those things that when you think of it, of course they can do that. <laughs> That's what they're designed to do. They are the perfect vessel for doing this. If you have ever had to deploy and work with VSTOs, even when they are legitimate and used by a vendor, they could be a pain in the arse due to requiring security rules to be loosened in order to allow them to download from maybe a hidden source that's being blocked by default in your organization. 
and just other all kinds of madness for enterprise environments when using VSTOs. I've never enjoyed using them. They were a pain in the butt and hopefully further highlighting this may steer customers away from uh, allowing them into their organizations and just kill them off as a concept entirely. Stern, stern but fair. Microsoft announced a public preview for health probe support in Azure container apps. It said that the health probe support will provide developers more control over their applications. It also says that readiness, liveness, and starter probes are now available over HTTPS and TCP protocols. I haven't done a whole lot with Azure Container Apps myself. I know that just in general with things like Docker, one of the problems was if you deploy a bunch of containers, you can't really have visibility of all the machines and where on the network and what network resources all those containers are then using and being able to see interdependencies easily. I used to use something called New Vector a few years ago for those purposes, and that was really awesome, and they got bought by SUSE, which I always mispronounce, but yeah, I, there's this is a space, this orchestration and transparency and visibility is a big deal in those types of environments, so I'm sure this is a welcome announcement. Also announced this week was approvals in Teams is now available in Microsoft 365 F1 SKU for frontline workers. Approvals in Microsoft Teams enables everyone from frontline workers to corporate headquarter employees to easily create, manage, and share approvals directly from your hub for teamwork. Approvals is now available in the F1 SKU that is targeted for frontline workers. So now frontline workers can do things pretty seamlessly and have these workflow processes that require approval at the end and have it all work within Teams. Interesting concept, kind of building maybe a workspace and workflow within Teams, kind of getting flashbacks of some of the features in Citrix Workspace that were announced at Synergy four years ago. But hey, cool to have this type of thing. I know that ServiceNow and various different portals also have this type of functionality. So getting that in Teams, which is very widely used, is welcome. Also announced this week by Microsoft was general availability of enhanced network security features for App Service Basic SKU. So the App Service now supports VNet integration for outbound and private endpoints inbound all the way down to the basic SKU. The App Service VNet integration feature enables your apps to access resources in or through a virtual network, but doesn't grant inbound private access to your apps. For inbound access, you need private endpoints, which allows clients located in your private network to then securely access your apps over private link, which eliminates exposure from the public internet. So that kind of tunneled view, I guess. With this update, you can use lower cost tiers and achieve the same level of security that you could, previous, that you could previously only achieve with the high-end SKUs. If you're currently using a high-end SKU to achieve this, you can check out the techcommunity.microsoft.com announcement for this, and there's some steps that you want to take in order to do so. And if you just want more details, check out the link with this episode as well. In more Microsoft announcements this week, 
the public preview was announced of Azure Virtual Desktop RDP Short Path for public networks. So I've talked a little bit about the RDP Short Path feature just in general when that was originally announced in preview, and I think it's generally available now too. I've talked about it a couple times. Well, now this one specifically for public networks. Dennis Gundarov wrote that this feature establishes direct UDP flow for RDP. However, it does not require any inbound ports to be opened on the firewall. Instead, it will automatically select the network conditions. It uses a combination of NAT traversal protocols such as STUN and UPnP and the process of interactive connectivity establishment. RDP then would establish the direct UDP flow in most network setups. As a result, your users would get lower latency, better network utilization, and high tolerance to packet loss or network configuration changes. To demonstrate the benefits of RDP short path, there's a video in the blog post, if you want to call it that, it's a tech community, it's kind of like an announcement post, uh, but he's got a great video showing Microsoft Flight Simulator, which is pretty intensive, and he's watching the video over two RDP sessions, one with reverse connect TCP transport, another using RDP short path, and you can see a pretty significant difference in performance. He goes on to say that RDP short path for public networks performs dynamic analysis over your network and it works in many cases, but some configurations are not compatible. For sure, you must have the UDP traffic flowing on your network, but even if UDP is allowed on the network, RDP short path may fail if you use double NAT setups. This includes a carrier grade NAT used by some cellular operators. It may also fail because some firewalls specifically block NAT traversal protocols are configured to prevent port reuse, which I actually had something like that with an ISP that I used in the past, but there was an option to change the configuration. If you want to get started, you can find information about RDP short path configuration in the AVD documentation. This episode's running a little long, so just a couple more quick hit stories for this week. Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops version 2203 is now the newest LTSR, which is the long-term service release. I believe that's what it stands for. So if you're in that category that likes to be on the LTSR, you don't like taking on every current release, and you'd rather work with implementing the cumulative updates that are released, this is going to be the new LTSR for you. It brings improved HDX performance, Linux VDA enhancements, cloud provisioning, and more. I look forward to hopefully a Go EUC analysis showing the performance differences for this LTSR versus maybe 7.15 and 7.6 as well. That'd be cool, guys. Hint, hint. <laughs> Please produce. Finally, Okta released a final forensics report that was compiled by a globally recognized cybersecurity firm related to their breach. That was a big story over the last month. It concluded that the threat actor actively controlled a single workstation used by a CITL support engineer with access to Okta resources, which obviously I reported on the podcast already. The control lasted for 25 consecutive minutes on January 21st, 2022. So that's new detail, only 25 minutes. 
During that limited window of time, the threat actor accessed two active customer tenants within the super user application and both have been notified separately. And the person viewed limited additional information in certain other applications like Slack and Jira that cannot be used to perform actions in Okta customer tenants. The threat actor was unable to successfully perform any configuration changes, MFA or password resets, or customer support impersonation events. The threat actor was also unable to authenticate directly to any Okta accounts. So I think <laughs> if they had the benefit of being able to report this shortly after the announcement of the breach, when it went viral on Twitter, I think this would have been a much greater reassurance than what they essentially do, which was kind of fumbling. But if I was an Okta customer today, I'd be pretty satisfied with this. It sounds like it was very, very low impact. And it seems like what they had in place did protect customers. So hopefully a happy ending. Hopefully that's the end of this. I guess we'll see. And now a weekly webinar. I saw this week on Twitter that a Windows 365 Accelerator event is going to be taking place. Christian Brinkhoff had shared it and it looks like Chris John is going to be one of the speakers at the event along with Scott Manchester and Jeremy Chapman, both of Microsoft. If you'd like to attend the event, you can register. It's taking place at 8 a.m. Pacific time on April 28th, which I think is 4 p.m. BST or IST and 5 p.m. Uh, Central European. So if you want to hear all about Windows 365, which is a pretty exciting offering for Microsoft, be sure to attend that event. And now this episode, Scripts, Tricks, and Tips. Speaking of Windows 365, just a tip to anyone using the product, you are able to submit any feedback and feature requests for the product by going to aka.ms slash w365feedback. Christopher Peacock on Twitter shared this week, unless you have specific scenarios that explicitly require these EXEs, these binaries on Windows, Microsoft recommends that you block a list of applications or binaries, and he shared that list. It's actually official Microsoft documentation, best practices. Although I saw some on there that have been on there for years, and I believe the vulnerability that had existed has been remedied, but maybe just in general, they're saying, hey, if you don't need these, just block them, even if there's no active threat right now. So I just, I thought it was interesting. It caught me out and I was like, oh, I've already seen this. Actually, Patrick Coble had shared it at an event I was at like three or four years ago. And I would used it religiously within WEM and within AppLocker and Policy Pack. But what caught my attention this time was because some of the EXEs that were no longer vulnerable still existed on that list, which I found interesting. Definitely worth checking out, and if you're not blocking these types of binaries today, it's worth considering. There's many different ways to do it. My show sponsor, as an example, Policy Pack is a great way. That's Policy Pack Least Privilege Manager. And also, Policy Pack Secure Run is really awesome if you want to keep it there and ensure the baddies can't run it, but approved people can. Speaking of Twitter, I had a discussion this week 
about Microsoft ending support for Office 365 apps on Windows Server 2022, which I talked about a couple of times on this podcast. It's been a concern because people who are maybe like Citrix customers, VMware Horizon customers, um, using RDSH, feel they may be forced into using a much more expensive one-to-one alternative in order to support and deploy Office 365 applications in virtual environments. And there's basically been a call put out to everyone in the community, if you think this is BS and you'd like to still be able to use it in those maybe published desktops as an example in future, push back, let yourselves be known. Contact your Microsoft rep and voice your concerns. Let them send it up the chain. Give that feedback to Microsoft because if they don't know that we don't like it, then they're just gonna roll ahead and do whatever they feel is best. And hey, by all means, I think them dropping support for this fits in with their own plans with Windows 365 and Azure Virtual Desktop. So I think even if we complain, they're probably not going to listen anyways. But hey, let's complain anyway. (laughs) Complain together. On last week's Scripts, Tricks, and Tips, I shared a tip about advanced searches within Twitter by Tessa Davis. Well, she had another excellent thread this week with seven Zoom hacks that you probably haven't heard of. A lot of people are using Zoom now. And these are ones that you'd be glad to learn. So check that out. I recently featured this blog, but I wanted to feature it again. But Brooks Pepin had an excellent blog post on how to speed up Intune enrollment with SCCM co-management. It seems like Intune mem adoption or adoption is greatly accelerating. So this type of content is very timely. Sharing.net had an excellent blog post as well this week on automating building custom Windows images for Azure Virtual Desktop with Packer and GitHub Actions. So there's various different solutions and blog posts on this topic. Um, I don't think I've seen one using Packer before, so very cool to see these different types of automation platforms and technologies being used. Great to see how everyone else is doing it. Excellent stuff. Microsoft published updated steps for securing domain controllers against attack. So always good to have the latest information. Check that out. Alex Durant posted a blog on creating a domain join account for AVD and basically things you need to consider um, when you're using Azure AD join, um, things like delegating control, permissions, and what type of permissions an account should have when joining a device to a domain. So very insightful stuff and again also very topical considering Azure AD join only recently became generally available in Azure Virtual Desktop. I say recently, I think it's been months, but that's how my brain works with time these days. Finally, David Santiago and Remy Kirat posted a blog on Azure private endpoints implementations at scale. This is another one. It's, I haven't been working in day-to-day IT for over a year. So being able to see how an organization is implementing Azure services like this at scale is very interesting to me. And it might be to you too. Well, that's it for another episode of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening.